Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Venezuela's congressional election in December will be neither free nor fair. Should the opposition participate anyway? It's a question that has divided the opposition once again. That coalition that we saw united uh, against Maduro and against the regime last year, it, it was it was always broken, I think, in some part. But right now, you can really see the cracks. Things in Venezuela are heating up again. I mean, it's already been a tough year for the country. There's a outbreak of COVID-19. We don't quite know how bad it is, given Venezuela's long record of lying about important statistics. We've also become accustomed to these terrible numbers around the economy, where according to some independent estimates, the uh, GDP may shrink by yet another 30% this year. And of course, there's been a humanitarian crisis ongoing for years with people suffering from malnutrition and other challenges uh, that has driven millions of people out of the country since 2015. But what has really sparked the world's attention uh, again are these legislative elections coming up later this year. There has been a split in the political opposition on whether to participate or not. And it seems like another big moment for Venezuela that will determine where the future of the country goes. To help us sort through some of that, uh, some of the politics, and also to tell us about what daily life in Caracas has been like during this pandemic, I'm joined from Caracas, Venezuela, by Ana Vanessa Herrero, a reporter at The Washington Post. Ana, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, 2020 has been tough for everybody. I'm sure it's especially tough in Caracas. What can you tell me? I mean, what this this strange experience that everybody all over the world is having right now, how does it feel different in Caracas? It's it's very weird here because Venezuelans are used to being locked down. We are very used to staying home and not going around the city very late because of violence and because we've been under a very strict uh, regime for the past and 20 years. So every time the government says do something, you know, not many people actually think about it. They just do it because they know that the consequences, if they don't, are going to be worse. So when the government immediately said, you know what, there's a national lockdown, there's extreme quarantine, everyone did it without questioning what, what was happening. Now, the problem came after a couple of months that the government really didn't have an economic plan. And this is a country that is suffering uh, very much on the economic part, although there are many parts in the world, there are many countries that were suffering the same. But the difference, at least two months after the quarantine started, most countries had a plan. Venezuela didn't. Venezuela was very focused on staying home because we don't have any hospitals. We don't have medicines. We know what we're dealing with if you know the pandemic explodes like it happened in Italy or in the United States. Right. So Venezuela started this pandemic already in a severe humanitarian crisis, and the virus just compounds so many other challenges. I want to move now, though, to the political crisis. A year and a half ago, when Juan Guaido emerged, he was this relatively unknown figure taking on this mantle of interim president. But there was a pretty remarkable amount of unity within the opposition around him. Twenty months later, the landscape is very different. 
Guaido's popularity in polls is is down, and you have now these new divisions within uh, the opposition. How difficult is life right now for the Venezuelan opposition? Well, that's a tough question because it depends on what are you considering an opposition. If you consider opposition as only the political parties or the political leaders who are against Nicolas Maduro staying in power, then I would say it's it's a hard one because uh, that coalition that we saw united uh, against Maduro and against the regime last year, it, it was it was always broken, I think, in some part. But right now you can really see the cracks. That is something that in any democratic country wouldn't be a problem because in any democratic country, you sit down, discuss your differences and, you know, try to find a point in common and that's it and work from there. Not in Venezuela. In Venezuela, you have Maduro's party that has taught the political leaders that they can't ever show their differences because the union is what's really important. And the opposition took that to the extreme, I think, at this point. So right now we're seeing an opposition, you know, uh, led by Enrique Capriles, who was a two-time presidential candidate, one time against Chavez and the other against Maduro. And, you know, leading the part of elections. Let's go to elections. We can do this. We can win the National Assembly again. And then you have the other part that is following Juan Guaido, saying that there is indeed an interim government that Venezuelans should respect and that, you know, it's not going to change until Maduro leaves. And then you have the third option, who aim for another option different from the continuity of Guaido and the administration of, of Maduro. So, for example, you have Maria Corina Machado, which is a political leader, very well known in Venezuela, asking for a very radical uh, solution to the problem. She uh, usually calls for a military, not intervention, but a military operation against Maduro. And then, you know, you have the rest of Venezuelans who don't really care because at the end of the day, Venezuelans have learned to live in the present. But beyond even living in the present, they I imagine they've lost some hope in the possibility for change, right? Definitely. A lot of times I hear um, people saying, look, you know, Venezuelans are tired of fighting. It's not that they're tired. It's that this has been a 20-year fight. And your abuser is the one in power. And everything that you do, you know, at the end of the day, it's not worth it because you have, you know, mothers without their sons and daughters after they were killed in a protest and then nothing happened. No one goes to jail. Maduro's still in power. So, I mean, people just lost hope and are trying to live and are trying to really take care of what they immediately need. And that is food. You can't find with an empty stomach. It's impossible. You think only of one thing. It's tough, though, because they they also know that the reason why they're hungry is because of this government, is because of Maduro, right? Exactly. When you talk to the people, they're like, yes, they are the ones to blame. The government are the ones to blame. But you know what? Most people also say, and the opposition are the ones to blame. Because for many years, when they said, let's go to the streets, we went. And let's not forget 2014, 17, and 19. These were huge protests in the streets, asking for change, people risking their lives, hundreds being killed, you know, in front of the entire world. We were there. The, the press was there. And then nothing happened. Another negotiation, nothing happened. So when people see that, say, you know what, 
I'm not going to risk myself. I'm just going to try living because at the end of the day, when I go back home, I have nothing to eat. So it's a very, very complex situation. You know, a Venezuelan lives. So tell me, Anna, about this debate happening within the opposition over the elections and whether to participate or not. And then if you can connect that for us to, you know, this general sort of political vibe. I mean, is this even something that most of Venezuelan society is paying attention to? Right now, people are just paying attention to two things, COVID and trying to get access to the basics. So politics are really not the main issue for the people right now. But the debate, politically, it's very important. First, because after a year and a half of Guaido being, um, I want to air quote this, in power and the interim government, after a year and a half of nothing happening, of several mistakes after mistake, then Capriles comes openly says that he has been negotiating or talking to the government and immediately at least 50 political prisoners are released and then another 50 are being pardoned. You know, that's the weird thing. We don't know the the crimes that they committed because they were never trialed, but they were pardoned. So that's an actual thing people can evaluate. That's something that people are saying, okay, maybe it's not the right thing, but but something is happening. So that decision that Capriles made, talking to Maduro and and to their government, actually made the opposition shake. And at least it brought the opposition to the public eye again as something real. Because, you know, this is an opposition that is mostly in exile and are really not connected or lost their connection with Venezuela a long time ago. And so what's the split there then? What's what's the difference between what the opposition in exile is pushing for versus what the opposition there on the ground in Venezuela is pushing for? Well, the opposition in exile are just, you know, pushing to continue what we have now. The interim presidency in the hands of Juan Guaido and the recognition of the international community. For them, the most important part is the international recognition. For the opposition here in Venezuela, the most important part is not the international community. The most important part is to regain trust and to regain that connection with the people. The only way they can do that is through campaigning and and, and through the elections. And so that's the case then that Capriles is making for participating in these elections in December. Definitely. Gabriela said, you know, we lost the connection and whatever we started in 2018 is not working anymore. We need another option, which is true. Now, the problem is that this option is not a new option. They've done this before. And again, the government has stepped over every single thing that the opposition won. So we can only expect the same results. Now, most people are criticizing Capriles, people that I talk to on the streets, because he's offering the same strategy that hasn't worked. So why follow Capriles and not keep doing whatever Waido is doing? Ana, I was hoping maybe you could give us a short bio and get us up to date on Enrique Capriles himself. I mean, he he ran for president, I guess now seven or eight years ago. And many people think that he was the guy who came closest to toppling Chavismo. Um And then, you know, for those of us who follow Venezuela, but not on a day-to-day basis, it was like he somewhat suddenly just fell off the radar and became unacceptable to a broad swath of 
the opposition. And I have to confess, I never totally understood why he was shunned. Can you tell us a little bit about him and kind of where he's been over the last couple of years? Yeah, of course. Well, he started very young into politics. He was the head of the National Assembly at the time when Chavez was elected. We're talking 1998, 99. And then he became a mayor in one of the uh, municipalities in Caracas. And after that, he became the governor of Miranda. And in that, during that time, he decided to run against Chavez. And then after Chavez died, run against Maduro. And without a doubt, what you're saying is completely accurate. He was the first person who truly had a chance against Chavez. He was very close to winning that election. And even Chavez recognized that he was a very, very good contendant. Chavez was very sick at this time, and he was forced to actually be present at every single rally in Caracas and in other parts of Venezuela uh, because Capriles united the entire opposition. He was just going state to state and knocking on every door, sitting down with people, explaining why they shouldn't vote for Chavez, but for him. And this was very tough because people adored Chavez. Then after Chavez died, he did the same with Maduro. The problem is that he stepped up and said, you know what, I don't recognize that Maduro won. This is fraud. He called the people to the streets for massive protests. People responded immediately. And then he stepped back and said, you know what, no, let's stay home. This is too risky. And, you know, at that point, people were so sure that he won and that the opposition was so close to winning that, you know, the opposition, the politicians, and also the people got really angry at him. We need to really understand that Venezuelan politics, is, it's personal. You know, it's either I love you or I hate you. That's for most politicians. So people seem to have flipped on Capriles, though. You had a bunch of people who loved him and then they decided they hated him. Was it because they just thought that he was not firm enough against Maduro? Exactly right. It's just like a personal relationship. They got very angry at him. And when you're angry at someone, you don't want to hear, listen, or follow that person. And that's what happened. After that bomb into everyone's expectations, you know, the opposition comes and wins the National Assembly. But we're now we we're not talking about just one man. We're talking about a hundred and something different people that were representing the opposition. Then the attention turned to them. And then Capriles just stopped working in politics. He was still there. You know, he was still, you know, trying to um, be present at some point. But he wasn't really the leader. Now it was the National Assembly. And then when Guaidó came, it was clear that the opposition had another different leader that was not Capriles. Now, I suppose Capriles is sensing a vacuum because Guaido is less popular and has kind of stepped back into the breach. Is, is that right? It looks like that. I don't know his personal motivation for this. I do think that he was waiting for the perfect timing. And I do think this is a perfect timing for him to actually jump again and say, hey, here I am. I have a different proposal. But the problem is that it's not different at all. It is the same thing that they've been doing this whole time. But still, just him speaking about this and managing to say, hey, I was the one who spoke to the government. And because of that, Juan Requesens was released and another 100 people were pardoned. Then that really shook the opposition again. Now the attention is turning to him again. 
So to just close off this subject of the opposition and their participation or not in the elections coming up in December, it's interesting because most of the opposition has said, no, we're out. We're not going to participate, led by Guaido. Then you have Capriles on the other side. But it seems, based on some surveys by firms like Data Analysis and Delfos, that most of the Venezuelan people are actually with Capriles on this one. Uh, less than one third of Venezuelans think that the main opposition party should sit out of the elections, meaning they believe, most people believe that they should participate. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think people really think that they should participate, but the truth is that no one's going to vote. I think the abstention is going to be huge. And I think that if the government doesn't change the date of the election, then, you know, that part of the opposition who are willing to participate in this might not go because, you know, the opposition that's here are asking for the international community to observe the election. If that doesn't happen, I don't really think, you know, the opposition is going to run and the government is going to be again in the middle of a crisis because either they accept the conditions or they don't and they have to then continue with the entire international community saying hey okay you're a dictator and they're trying to prove the the international community wrong um it's really hard to do so but they're trying to do that and you know the opposition participating in elections was a perfect way to do it and then we have covid how are you going to control that the airports are still shut down so, I mean, how are people going to come and vote, come here to the country again? They don't have a plan, or at least they haven't, you know, announced it. Well, and it shows just how COVID is just like that added complication. I have to confess, when you said, what about COVID? I sort of slapped my forehead and said, oh, God, that's right. Yeah, COVID too. <laughs> At this point, we're used to live with COVID, you know, because, I mean, let's face it, it's been, what, six, seven months. But the truth is that how can you control that? I mean, we're still on online education. So what, are you going to call everyone to vote again? And they haven't said how they're going to do it. So one of the things that happens when an opposition is divided and when there's this kind of debate is that it distracts attention from the person who's in charge, right? And uh, we have talked very little so far about Nicolas Maduro. What has he been up to through all of this? I mean, I imagine that he's been quite pleased to see these distractions and these these um, this debate within the opposition. But what can you tell us just rather briefly about you know how he's been handling the pandemic so far, how, if at all, Venezuelans' opinion of him have changed? I mean, what's where where has he been throughout all of this? Well, I think the opinion is still the same and all polls, you know, tend to um, corroborate this. It's not a good review. It's not the worst review either. Uh, I don't think anyone was expecting, you know, Venezuela to actually have a great or an amazing handling of the situation. But to tell you the truth, immediately after the first two cases were announced, March 13, he decided to go you know, directly to extreme lockdown. And that, according to different doctors and experts that I've talked to over the past few months, was the best decision, including doctors that are clearly against Nicolás Maduro. He created a law to avoid anyone wearing a mask outside. The bad part here is that he used this also to militarize the country if he could do it anymore, because, I mean, let's face it, it was already a military country, right? He used this as a perfect excuse to definitely control the streets that he lost last year. 
It's also true, though, that we don't really know the full extent of the virus's impact there, right? I mean, I, I hesitate to even say out loud what the government's official number of COVID deaths is because it's so low. We've been conditioned, I think, entirely justifiably to have total distrust in government numbers over the last couple of years. I mean, I, there's, I imagine there's a lot going on out there that we don't know about. Well, it's definitely underreported for sure, according to doctors that I've talked to. And you can see this, the numbers that they're giving are probably true. But the problem is that they don't have enough tests. And that is the big issue. If the tests you have give you a thousand cases a day, then the experts don't have any reason to believe that's not the case. But as long as you tell them that you don't have enough tests to actually, you know, create a good testing policy that will give you results to the real uh, situation of the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, it's true that there's underreporting everywhere. Um, final question for you, Anna. Uh, you may have heard that we're having an election in the United States soon as well. How closely are people following that in Venezuela? Do they believe that it will have a impact on the situation on the ground there? Uh, and what's your own analysis as far as how important the U.S. election will be to reality on the ground in Venezuela? Well, I think the U.S. election is important all over the world. But I don't really think uh, if the administration changes, then the situation in Venezuela is going to change dramatically. Maybe if we only talk about sanctions, we, we can expect a change there if the actual Trump administration changes. But if we don't talk about sanctions, I don't really think anything is going to change here. Different from all the uh, expectation of Venezuelans in Miami or abroad in Europe or in other countries, because foreign policy and internal policy are so different. And the, the speech outside of Venezuela is, well, you know, Trump has helped the country, has helped the opposition, which I think the recognition of Juan Guaido immediately after he was sworn in front of hundreds of thousands in 2019 was very important. But he, but Trump hasn't really done any specific changes inside of Venezuela. You know, everyone is expecting, for example, uh, on a, a military intervention that never happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just out of curiosity, I mean, that was there was, I think, intentional innuendo put forth by Trump and by officials like John Bolton, who was then the national security advisor in 2019 to sort of create this expectation that there might be an invasion. And who knows whether they were serious or trying to talk tough or whether they were just catering to, you know, Venezuelans and, and their descendants in Florida. It's not clear to me. Sitting here in 2020, have those expectations changed? I mean, do you still find people in the opposition or on the street in Caracas who believe that there might be some U.S. military action? No, not at all. If you go in, into every specific case, I'm sure you can find someone, but that's not the popular opinion anymore. Last year it was. And, you know, I, I think we have to put this into context. In 2019, there was no one thinking that change couldn't be possible. You know, in 2019, I remember I was working for the New York Times and I remember talking to my editor and saying, mm, I think this might be it. You know, the, it, it's a different proposal. It's different from everything that we've seen. And they have the support of 50 something countries. I mean, there was a lot. So that threat, it needed to be taken seriously. 
Now in 2020, you know, we know that it was just just talking to encourage, you know, the popular mobilization. Well, that's my my thought. And uh, to also uh, support the Venezuelan opposition and, and make it look like, hey, I got his back. And it worked until, I don't know, last year. And then, you know, the opposition continued with the plots against Maduro that never worked. And that is something that maybe forced the U.S. to look a different way or not paid so much attention to Juan Guaido anymore. And I think there were many mistakes uh, that the opposition made politically last year and this year. But answer your, your question directly, I don't think that either one administration or the other are going to really change the future of Venezuela unless the next president sit down with Maduro, negotiates for better conditions in every single way. Then that would be different. So in conclusion, Anna, you know, after after our chat and thanks for your time, but what it sounds like to me is don't expect much in the way of change in Venezuela. Am I wrong? You know, the things in Venezuela change so fast, so quickly. It's so unexpected that I've been covering Venezuelan politics for the past 13 years. And I've made sure of never saying, no, nothing's going to happen. But I don't expect anything happening soon unless it's something military out of the blue. But politically, if we follow the events, then I don't think anything is going to change. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.